I'm a product of the same era. I'm just a little older and a little wiser, but I still wear my flip flop. The title of today's show is Entrepreneurs Starting Out Right, The Challenges Ahead and How the Landscape is Changing with Guy Kawasaki. Guy Kawasaki is a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, a marketing expert, author, and pioneer of the evangelistic approach to marketing. He was one of Apple's original marketeers responsible for promoting the Macintosh line in 1984, a job he got through his roommate at Stanford. He returned years later to become their chief evangelist, and when he left, he famously said, I started listening to my own hype, and I wanted to really make big bucks. He started three companies, invested in more than 10. He's a celebrated author, having written 15 books, and has become a leading voice in entrepreneurship and growth hacking. The most famous of his books is The Art of the Start, one of the leading blueprints for entrepreneurs, or in its own words, anyone starting anything. Hey, Jack, are you ready? Yeah, let's do this. Dude, I know you're buzzing because obviously you're entrepreneur of the year and you're buzzing that you're about to talk about entrepreneurship but like a fishy i think every subject is your favorite subject but it's true you know with space at brian cox but i think entrepreneurship is don't tell your wife your first love it's my first love i've got to be honest and to be honest i love podcasts i love doing this with you because we just get to talk about cool subjects and if this keeps happening i mean i'm just super excited did you get that song by the way la 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 did you get that song yeah, I'm trying to remember what that was. It was I, I, I'm not going to lie. As a walking musical encyclopedia, I'm a bit ashamed. I don't know what that is. <laughs> you know what it is? These songs come from the original um, uh, Apple adverts. And, you know, whether oh, it's We Are Fun. Yeah. And I just, they're so upbeat and inspiring. Like, they're almost Disney-like, looking to the positive world. Very West Coast. And I kind of love that because I'm a product of the Steve Jobs era. In fact, um, you know, I just modeled so many ideas and thoughts on 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 his journey and what he said and so many of us did and even though Guy Kawasaki's got a few years on me you know he worked with him and he's you know going to be a no question for me a huge admirer of him um and Mm. but he's going to be able to relate to just the way Silicon Valley thinks about entrepreneurship and you know no matter what I think having spent time out there spent time in Boston in New York a hell of a lot of time in London uh, there's an awful lot we can glean um, and, and, and you know, learn from Silicon Valley. Well, I've never actually met anyone from Silicon Valley or Stanford. I think my exposure to Stanford was, I think, what was it? The commencement speech from Steve Jobs on YouTube, which is very famous by now. Oh, yeah. I think for me, as a budding, 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 budding entree, entrepreneur, a, as in Fuck just entree. Hell. We're, you read a lot of stuff online about oh Steve Jobs did this, Steve does that. If you want to master innovation, you need to do ten thousand press ups and wear the same T shirt that Steve Jobs does every day when he was doing it. You know, and it would be cool to hear from Guy himself what the man was behind the behind the brand, the brain, and see what we can learn and perhaps see what we don't need to do. You know, because I've got mixed opinions on Steve sometimes, man. Like, I, I think he could have been nicer. You know, well, I think well, from what I know, I, I so. think there's no doubt about that. But he is, or what you see is what you get, guy. And 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 excuse the pun, but I think Guy Kawasaki will have a, a lot to say. I've witnessed something, and that's that he wore a certain you know set of clothes, and it was his look, his brand. It may have been a nod towards mm. simplicity in a in an era of complexity. Yeah. Um, but I would argue that he missed a shortcut and 
we learnt it through the social media revolution, and that was you didn't have to wear the same pair of jeans or or you know, the same <laughs> pair of sneakers. All you needed to do was slip on a pair of flip flops, and that was it. <laughs> um, do you know what? I, I and shameless self plug. Big up Steve Jobs. He put one of my tunes in an Apple advert as well. Just just harking back to what you were singing at the beginning. Did he really? <laughs> you... He really did. Wow. <laughs> Dude, that's amazing. You're going to have to send me that one, by the way. I will do, man. Anyway, okay. let's go meet Guy. All right, cool. <laughs> Today we have an evangelist, marketeer, and a trailblazing entrepreneur, a product of Silicon Valley, none other than Guy Kawasaki. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Very well done. <laughs> yeah, I give that a good, like, eight and a half out of ten, Martin, for an intro. Well, That's I good. appreciate that. Thanks very much. All right, let's start with a somewhat provocative question, um, and let's just talk about the present day. What do you think? Is it a good or bad time to start a company, Guy? I can't make the case it's a great time, but my observation is that bad times create great companies, and also the flip side, uh, great times create bad companies. And so what, what I think happens is, when it's a bad time, uh, money is tight, you know, it's hard to, to do things, and it improves the breed. A true entrepreneur is going to start a company when he or she is going to start a company. And if, if you're talking to somebody and you're dealing with somebody who says, yeah, I'm going to start a company as soon as I have patent pending, world class, you know, enterprise scalable, revolutionary product – and it's a growing market, and there's no competition, and capital is easy, that person is not an entrepreneur and will never start. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. And so we're going to get into a lot of detail around passion, opportunity, timing, roadmap, all that good stuff. But what are the trends you're seeing right now? To separate the pandemic, but what do you think is really hot right now for, for startups? Like what gets you excited? By the time somebody like me, who's 66 years old uh, and – you know, sort of the, not the leading edge uh, of technology, by the time I think something's hot, it's probably too late to get into it. So truly, the question is better asked of two guys in a garage, two gals in a garage, a guy and a gal in a garage, or in a dorm room, or in an apartment, this is all pre-pandemic, of course, um, about what they are trying to do, because uh, that's the leading edge of technology. It seems to me that the great tech companies started because two people created a product that they wanted to use. That describes Apple, that describes Yahoo, that describes Google. And so it's not because old people like me have recognized a trend or recognized an opportunity. It's because two young people who didn't know any better and didn't know what they didn't know decided to do something. Yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. But you have an opinion, don't you? Uh, I have an opinion, but, you know... <laughs> Opinions are like orifices. Everybody has one. So <laughs> yeah, what we're seeing is what's coming up on your radar. Look at people like Elon Musk. I mean, I, I don't think they're um, making intellectual decisions based on market research about what to do and what to invent. I think it's based on their gut, their vision, their passion. Yeah, I, well, I think that's true. I mean, if I, if I look at my background, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm starting from a point of curiosity, then I'm looking for validation. And if I'm still passionate and interested, then I'll go and invest in it. Um, yeah, and, and I think great companies start because the entrepreneurs ask very simple questions like, is there a better way? Or mm -hmm. isn't this interesting? Or, you know, my favorite question to ask is, therefore what? And by that, I mean, you look at 
what conditions are evolving, and you ask yourself, well, therefore, what companies will be necessary? So to go back in history, uh, let's say that you saw the growth of cell phones and, and you figured out that cell phones are getting more and more common. They are getting smaller. They have cameras in them and they're connected to a data network. Therefore, what? Therefore, you start Instagram to share pictures. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of insight that builds an Instagram by asking, therefore, what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sure. we're in a pandemic in 2021 which has changed a lot of the landscape, therefore what? Well, therefore online education, uh, therefore virtual meetings, uh, therefore reducing uh, dependence on uh, manufacturing from all over the world where you know so many things could go wrong, whether it's uh, a trade war between the United States and China or storms in, in the, a wide part of the United States, uh, you're, you're trying to reduce the exposure you have to some of these risks. And the concept before was, you know, every widget in every color, in every size, in every possible configuration made in the cheapest place we can find in China. Maybe that's not such a good philosophy anymore. Yeah, I see. I mean, one of the ways also to look at the, uh, an extension of what you're saying is how do we redefine what we're seeing? So you can shine a lens on things. How do you redefine human connection? How do you redefine collaboration? Um, out of this become splinter opportunities. Clubhouse becomes Clubhouse video. That has completely changed because it, it used to be, you know, let's jump on a plane and, and go to Beijing or go to Shanghai. Uh, now it's all virtual. You know, arguably... I have to say, I like it better. Um, I have not been on an airplane since about March. And if I never get on another airplane, it would be fine with me. So I'm cool. It's uh, impossible for me, but I've dreamed about that outcome. But it's just not, it's just not reality for me. But, but I hear you. You, you. Wait, you dream about the outcome of not flying or flying? Not flying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, and I, I live between New York and London, and I'm, I have an aircraft business. I love, I love flying. I love aviation. But I don't like turbulence. I'm also getting tired, so I just just if I could do without it, I would. But it would be a different world. Oh yeah. Let us let's talk about um, entrepreneurs starting a business or, or or people that are already out there looking for their growth. Before we get into a lot of detail, is there like one thing in your career like you'd say this is what I'd tell entrepreneurs? Like just can, can I have two things? Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> Long-winded American. So <laughs> um, the, the first thing is that. Usually your current customer can't tell you how to truly innovate. That if you're selling them Apple IIs, they're not going to describe a Macintosh. If you're selling them Macintoshes, they're not going to describe an iPhone. And so usually your current customers can only describe what they want in terms of what they're already getting. Bigger, faster, cheaper Apple II, bigger, faster, cheaper Macintosh, bigger, faster, cheaper iPhone. So uh, that's why innovation is so hard because there's nobody else to ask. So that's number one. And number two, uh, a very important philosophy, I think, is you never ask people to do something that you yourself would not do. Oh, now, yeah. this assumes you're not a psychopath, okay? Why are you asking your prospective customers to go through CAPTCHA? If you hate it, why are you putting that speed bump in front of them? So it's it's things like that that... Um, it's a very good test that you're not asking your customers to do something you wouldn't do, your employees, your vendors, your partners. Um, you should never ask people to do something you don't want to do either. 
Right, I think that's great. Let's go back to your first point, though. Uh, I mean, that one's very, very clear, and I completely agree. But the first one, what is the point to the entrepreneur, right, that you're actually trying to make, right? Because you're saying don't ask customers. Well, you know, you've just, you just defined it, the answer, that if it's bigger, faster, cheaper, yeah, they can say those things. They can also improve the experience by telling you what they think of friction. But what sh- what's, what's the output for, for an entrepreneur? Well, the ultimate output for an entrepreneur at the highest level, I think, is to create a customer. And so, you know, as opposed to raise money or as opposed to provide a meaningful return to shareholders, uh, I think entrepreneurship is all about creating customers. And if you create customers, everything else falls into place. So that's what an entrepreneur should focus on. Gotcha. Can can we... Can we start back at your journey? It's fascinating. And like this this whole period in the 80s, I, I don't know if that's one of your more interesting periods of your life, but I'd love to say, you know, if you could just describe like kind of the, the Apple experience and how you ended up, you know, marketeering in the world of the Macintosh. Uh, how did that come about? So my own version quickly is that uh, I am living proof of the um, – value of nepotism. So I went to school at Stanford and at Stanford, I met a guy named Mike Boych and he and I became friends and roommates and he was extremely technical. And so after graduation, believe it or not, I went to law school and quit after two weeks. He uh, went on a different path and he ended up at Apple. So at Apple, he was Macintosh's first software evangelist. So his job was to convince people to write Macintosh software. And he hired me, uh, purely nepotism, because on paper, I certainly didn't have the right qualifications academically or work experience. So he hired me and I became the second software evangelist and the rest is history. So there's a few lessons there that number one, um, you know, maybe the most important thing about your college experience is who you meet as opposed to what you study. That's right. one. Uh, number two is, you know, it doesn't matter how you got the job. It matters what you do once you get the job. So I got it because of nepotism. But once I got in there, you know, I actually delivered, which is more important. Uh, a third lesson is that your background really doesn't matter on paper. So I, I did not have the right background for that job at all. And I succeeded. And so I would encourage people to sometimes look beyond the resume and look beyond the LinkedIn profile. I think one of the most important variables uh, for entrepreneurs as they determine who to hire is not simply education and work experience, but does the candidate get it? Does the per- candidate love what you do? And I would make the case that someone with the perfect education, perfect work experience, who doesn't love what you do and doesn't get it, should not be hired. So you you look for passion, right? What else other than passion? When you say they get it, right? It's passion's one thing. Like, is it is it creativity? Is it diversity? Is it perspective? Uh, is it collaboration? You know, these softer but important skills. They are important skills, but I also think that uh, they are very hard to determine. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, in if you show someone your product or your service and you watch how they react, you can tell in about five or 10 minutes, do they get it or not? It's, yeah. I think it's pretty obvious. And of course, the absolute best condition is when people show up and they already use your product or service. 
So, you know, they got it early and, and that's a deciding factor in who they want to work for. So that would be the best case condition. It's hard to imagine that if you want to get a job at Apple uh, during the interview, let's say the interview asked her, so what kind of Macintosh and phone do you use? And the person says, well, I have an Android phone and I have a Windows computer. Well, that's a (laughs) non-starter. You know, throw that person out already. I, th- I think the idea is the canvas um, is, or the or the building of culture is that the actual thing that spreads the fabric is that everyone believes in the same thing and that they just love to be there. And, and like you said, maybe that also injects the softer things like collaboration because they just want to make this work or they're just in love with what they do. If I can, I'd, I'd like to just say, you know, how do you first of all just define yourself? You've done a few things like you're a celebrated author, you're, you're a marketeer, you're obviously an entrepreneur. I don't want to put those words in your mouth. Like, what are you? Or are you just many things? You know, at, at one level, evangelist and marketer. At a second level, uh, parent and husband. Arguably, that's higher than the first one. Third one is a passionate lover of surfing, which is different than saying I'm a surfer. Because a sur- when you say you're a surfer, it implies you know what you're doing. I'm saying that I surf. That's different than saying I am a surfer. The bigger question that you may in fact be asking and not realize it is (laughs) what do I want to be remembered for? And I want to be remembered for two things, uh, raising good kids and empowering people. So my mantra for my life is empower people. I want to empower people with my writing, speaking, podcasting, investing, advising, um, you know, basically any kind of contact you've had with me i've i've empowered people to as steve jobs said dent the universe yeah i mean that was like an epitaph right but but that <laughs> right and, and listen you're still going strong and that might be at the end of the podcast but but i totally get it i mean i you want to you want to elevate people elevate their lives through your work yes right? so throughout your journey and we'll, we'll, we'll go through the journey into some some more entrepreneurial stuff I'm interested to know what struck you most about your career because as you sprinkle through your writings and your entrepreneurial pursuits, your venture capital, um, you, I don't ask you to connect the dots like George, but what is that one thing, if there is one thing, where you think, well, this has affected my life and this is what I want to do different? Well, I, I would have to say from the outside looking in, I'm an enigma. I mean, I I never had this plan. Um, I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, and just because of a sixth grade teacher who encouraged my parents to take me out of the public school system and put me into the private school, you know, college prep system, uh, that changed the arc of my life. Uh, were it not for her conversation with my parents and my parents willing to sacrifice to give me that private school education, I would not be here. So you know, that's the very start. And then wow. there's this serendipitous uh, Stanford roommate who got me a job in Macintosh division and the rest is history. So it's, I I can't tell you that I ever had a plan. And then, you know, in the middle of all that, I became a writer. I've written 15 books. So if you had told me in 1972, when I graduated from high school, that, you know, you're going to become a writer and a speaker and a podcaster, and you're going to work for a high tech company and become chief evangelist of a, you know, unicorn out of Australia, I would have told you you're nuts. (laughs) You know, that's just not the arc of my life. You've talked about you know, working with, with Steve Jobs. And I'm interested to know um, what made you think he was a visionary 
And did anything rub off on you? Well, uh, you know, I, I think that in one's career, if you do one big thing, you you are in the rare air already, right? But if you look at Apple, and I'll take Apple in general, not just Steve Jobs, but let's face it, he's responsible for most of it. So, you know, this is the person who basically created a company that did the Apple One, the Apple Two, Macintosh, iPad, iPod, iPhone, Apple Retail, you know, stores. That was a convention-breaking thing. I mean, how many people have done five or six things? And and then, you know, so that's at a at a high-level product. But also think about, you know, he was the person who started with um, putting a CD-ROM drive in computers and, you know, serial ports and, you know, just go down the line. And so many things happened uh, because of Apple. Uh, some people who've done any one of those things would declare victory and, and honestly should declare victory. But Steve did four, five, six of those things. That's, you know, when six people tell you you're drunk, you catch a cab. Well, when six when you do six great things, you're pretty much a visionary. I mean, there's no question. And I would say the only person who's like that so far is Elon Musk. Was there any time where you're spending all that quality time with him as chief evangelist where certain things that he do or attributes to the, his approach or his outlook rubbed off on you and steered you as you left the company? Well, uh, you know, he has a fantastic influence on me and, and not necessarily in the way you might assume, which is basically he scared the shit out of me. So um, he he did not suffer fools, if you know what I mean. And he would not hesitate to humiliate you, not because he wanted to humiliate you. It was just his way. He was uh, he wasn't impolite. He was apolite, just like you yeah. can, you know, he was just like some people are not immoral. They're amoral. Well, he was apolite and it was he was just a what you see is what you get kind of guy. And um, I saw him just rip a few people in public. And, you know, contrary to every HR and personnel practice you've ever heard about maintaining a positive outlook and effectively communicating and kumbaya and, you know, all that kind of shit. Basically, Steve Jobs, I think, managed by fear. And contrary to every other HR theory I've ever heard, I can tell you something. Fear works. <laughs> fear works. I mean, is that a lack of social skills that make that is balanced by his visionary ability? Well, I, yeah, um, that's that's an academic way of saying it. It's a very interesting question. Um, you know, you know, we, let's take Steve Jobs out of the equation. Let's just say in general. But you know, which comes first? So you can make the case that when you're a visionary and extremely successful. People put up with your bullshit, right? So you can kind of be an asshole. So if you're a visionary, you can be an asshole. But maybe being an asshole, scaring people, helps you become a visionary and successful. So which came first? <laughs> Fair enough. Would you disclose that advice to future entrepreneurs as a management style? No. <laughs> because you know what? The asshole part is easy. It's the visionary part that's hard. So yeah, one of the dangers of becoming a, a student of Steve Jobs is it's hard to separate causation from correlation. So believe me, there are a lot of people who say, okay, so Steve Jobs, he wore jeans, he wore black mock turtleneck, he wore New Balance running shoes, uh, he drove a Mercedes, he parked in the handicapped slot, he drove in the carpool lane by himself. So I'm going to do all those things and I'll be the next Steve Jobs. No, you're not. You're just going to be an asshole. Yeah. 
I mean, True. The, the, there's another way to, to look at this, and that's that you can't look at outliers. Okay, so having and this to me, this is this is your stage, guy. But um, I was a product of, of of Steve Jobs. I interviewed was I followed him throughout his career. I loved what he was. I didn't like the fact that he was a little sociopathic, or that or that uh, it's true, and that and that fear was his number one thing. I mean, you went in the room, you best be prepared, and you'd still have an outburst if it wasn't right. But no one can question the second coming, right? Or even or even Pixar. Or the you know the, essentially the loan from Microsoft and then to create the world's greatest company. So something was right about this guy. However, the outliers, Elon Musk and his guys, um, are statistical improbabilities. In fact, when you think about management style, you might want to take some of those assertions and behaviour, but you really want to be somewhere in the middle. Is that not yes. fair? Yes, that's very fair. And uh, this is one of the problems with fundamentally. Uh, much business wisdom and business writing, which is it's not scientific, right? So, you know, you can read the biography of Steve Jobs or Richard Branson or Elon Musk, um, Oprah Winfrey, anybody like that. But it's there's no science to that. The, The science would be you control all the variables except one and then you test that variable. So... But that is an artificial situation you cannot replicate in real life. It would be like saying, okay, so we take two people of equal talent in the same size market with the same potential, with the same product. One is an asshole. One isn't. Let's test the asshole, you know, variable. Can't do that. I think if I was to simplify it even further, I'll just say some people just have it and some don't. Do you know what I mean? If if I was to compare in my world where it comes to musicians right some people go on to be become billy eilish and some people end up playing at the roses and arms in east london and um it's not to say the person in the rose and arms isn't talented it's just some people ha- just have it and they you can't match that disposition that concoction it just happens that way so steve that was his management style i don't even think he learned that from anywhere that's just what he did yes but I think it's very dangerous to conclude that um, his management style was sufficient and necessary to succeed. Yeah, agreed. Let's stay on the subject of Silicon Valley because I'd, I'd like to just get some thematic uh, moments out because you're a product of Silicon Valley. You know, you went to Stanford, you, you, you're in that culture. It's produced some of the greatest companies in the world. Um, I think sometimes as someone that's empathetic to technology and has spent a great deal of time myself out there, I just think that there's some drawbacks to this kind of bubble, this gigantic bubble. And and it's unfortunate. You might have read in the press, you know, with the you know, the whole issue with, with Australia and this simple fight between the platform and the publisher, right? What do you make of that? Have you read about it? You know, I, I maybe you can explain it to me. I don't understand what's going on there. All right, so let's let let's throw it out there. Let me define this this shit argument that's happening right now. Um, but I think it's worth inter- it's interesting because I think it, it's a lesson for entrepreneurs. But I'll get to that in a minute. The simple argument is that um, these monopolies have, have come about. Facebook, you know, you know, let's call them cartels. You know, the Googles, and they come under you know unfair scrutiny and pressure from senators and other people alike, and are called to account because they have so much control. Whether it's you know privacy, whether it's the way they control revenue, whether it's the way they dictate practices for other industries. So the news guys, the Murdochs of the world, the publishers, 
they've got deals and the argument is they think that when people share information on facebook or or indeed on google that they're not getting a fair share so they use the lobby movement to, or the megaphone of government to say shit yeah how is this fair they've got too much control so there's a law coming out in australia to ensure that there's fairness in the way that publishers get paid i think this is incredibly engineered by the publishers themselves the news sources and so facebook went hell no let me tell you, you use our platform as well to build more awareness, to build more subscriptions for your publishing empire, etc. And that's the rules of the game. So what's happened is it's just an opportunity for them to negotiate again a deal with the tech giants. Um, and I'm not saying it's much ado about nothing because it leads to them having to tarnish their brand in public. Wait, wait. When you say they, you mean they Facebook or they the they Facebook? They. So if this argument comes out, what Facebook just did recently is take down external news in Australia. The problem they've got is they're washing their dirty laundry in public. Now, what all that happens is they get over the fight, they renegotiate with the news publishers, but there's some deterioration in their brand equity, um, and that's what this whole argument is about. And it won't go away tomorrow. Google have decided. We can't win this war. Okay, we're, do- we've got- we're done pretty well. Now they're making deals with publishers locally. And ju- it's really just an opportunity to level the playing field between the tech giant and the media publisher. That's it. Um, the problem is the, the government's got involved and said, oh, I think there's a-, there's a law here. There's also one in the European Union. It's going around the world to try and not break up the cartel. This is not a browser war or anything like that. It's just to try and impose some limits around their control and allow partners to work better with them. That's it. But see, what I'm missing is, let's take Google as an example. Yeah. Google is helping you find information. So why is so? Why does Google have to pay the New York Times to send people to the New York Times? The New York Times should be paying Google to send people to the New York Times. What am I missing? Well, I... I th- I think on so you've got Google, so you've got to think of Google News, not rather than search. But I don't think it's an unf- I don't think it's an unfair bias. That in pursuit of their mission, they're doing exactly what they should do. A better example would be the Facebook situation that's happening right now. And by the way, Google's conceded they're make they're making deals, brand new publishing deals with the Murdoch Corporation with local Australian news, doing the same in Europe. So they've decided let's flatten it and just have a better negotiation between the publisher and the platform. Facebook decided we don't like this because we think we're giving you a lot of press, we're sharing your news, and now you complain about the way the users share it? That's their argument. So if you don't like it, we'll switch it off, and it will affect the, the people that use our platform, and you won't get any awareness whatsoever. And so they're up, but the argument is that they want to be paid more by Facebook. I mean... It's hard to feel sorry for either Rupert Murdoch or Mark Zuckerberg. You know, I'd right, have right. to think about that. Who <laughs> should, whose side should I take in that argument? Um, I'm, I'm going to throw it out there. I just think it's an argument much to do about nothing. But if if you're an entrepreneur, you don't want to have your you don't want to have your brand equity tarnished in the press. So, well, I'm going to give you a great example. Fourteen months. Right, two hundred and twenty billion. Facebook with the Senate hearings, and he's, when he immediately said, "You know, well, this is going to change our algorithm, and we're going to make less revenue." This was the upshot of it, and all of a sudden, you saw some short selling, and their market cap took a while to rebuild. That's a, a rash example of, of of losing brand equity because trust wasn't with Facebook. This is the kind of thing that can happen to any any entrepreneur if they're out in the PR area. 
you know, developing their thing, you know, developing whatever their their new thing is. I just think that uh, it it's something that it, what what does the end consumer really care? Um, but it struck me that it, it's just not really news, but actually it can affect companies and it can affect them at any level, any size. I mean, when I'm listening to all that, it just kind of reminds you how big some of these companies are and how much power they have over your over the world and that's been coming out recently in terms of like the drawbacks of some of the innovations of silicon valley because that's what when you talk about silicon valley it's been relevant for me in the last year in terms of especially even around the pandemic uh, false information um flawed medical advice from different people online whether it's addiction to social media these are all innovations that are born out of silicon valley and and control a lot of the world now we should we view those as progressive things or drawbacks well, but, you know, whenever somebody says oh, Facebook and Google and you know, Apple, put anybody, Amazon, they're cartels and they're monopolies, I, I just don't understand that because nobody's forcing you to use Facebook. If you don't like Facebook, don't use it. It's not like they're the only supplier of electricity or gasoline or water. So if you don't like Facebook, get off Facebook. What's the problem? Let me tell you, guys, just nails it. It's that simple. So if you don't like Amazon... Then go to the fucking stores. I mean, it's everywhere. Right? I mean, it's really if if they had a, a bad experience, you just wouldn't use them. Yeah, vote if, with your feet. Yeah, if if you were being abused, you'd walk away. No, I but hope. that doesn't take away some of the tactics underplaying it, like the gamifying of it all. Ne- not necessarily Amazon, because I love Amazon. The 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 pandemic and Amazon has it's been amazing for me. I <laughs> get a the, daily delivery. Exactly. I get my water delivered every two weeks now. But the um, someday, you know what? Someday the Amazon truck is going to pull up to my house and they're going to drop off like two llamas. And I'm going to say, oh, who ordered that from my family? (laughs) To be fair, my recycling guy can't keep up with my Amazon orders. The amount of boxes I'm breaking down is actually that's more stressful than the Amazon orders. Now, guy, be careful. If I have anything to do with it, I'm going to be delivering your parcels on your lawn. With drones. <laughs> yeah, that's a little key tip from Martin. No, but some of it, like um, the, the the social media side of it, where in particular where kind of extreme views can kind of take hold. Like even when I jump on Twitter, which in theory is an amazing, beautiful thing where you can share beautiful thoughts, but a lot of the world just don't have beautiful thoughts. And then during this time, it's just been exacerbated where you've just got trending topics of just like pure hate, basically. But you got to learn to ignore that shit. I don't. What's the problem? I don't. I can ignore it. You can ignore it, but a lot of the population can't, and they buy into it. Well, I, you know, is, I, I think guess that, where some of the innovations are hard to manage. Yeah, I, I think the case should be made that just as kids are taught math and writing and you know reading and all those kind of skills, one skill now is how to use the internet. At, at like 10 studies. years old, I would yeah. make the case it's more important to learn how to use the internet than how to do algebra. I mean, you know, you, you could say that there's a very take case in point, right? So students should learn that just because an organization is a .org, it doesn't mean that they're a good organization doing good in the world. Because any clown with 20 bucks can get a .org, right? So you could be, you know whitenazi.org that doesn't mean that that's a good thing so you know some of these really basic things need to be taught that's a profound idea to be fair i haven't heard that one i'm a profound guy he's the guy damn but you know what i i gotta say um yeah i this whole this whole like let's break them up big companies are bad they're monopolies i 
If you don't like Amazon, don't use Amazon. I mean, my idea for Amazon was that you know, we should recruit Amazon to administer vaccinations because there's no doubt in my mind. If you said, Amazon, you you do the vaccination, everybody in, in America would be vaccinated in a, in a week. A truck would be pulling up. The driver would get out. Nurse would get out. They'd jab you, wait 15 minutes and gone. And then while you're there, you know, put the chip in me, too, with the vaccination. So when I think of ordering something on Amazon, it already gets ordered. I love that. I'm hearing brain machine interfaces doing away with any clinical trials and hygiene and putting on the back of an electric vehicle. Something is wrong with this picture. (laughs) (laughs) It's unreal. I love it. I, I mean, that's it. not actually a bad idea to get oh, if Bezos fuck wants to take over a vaccine. No, look, look, let's be real. He's joking if, with you. I'd be up for Amazon <laughs> delivering me my vaccination. Let's talk about, let's talk about, um, you know, obviously you're a thought leader on entrepreneurship. You wrote The Art of the Start. You're an entrepreneur yourself, a marketer. You're in this bloody culture that's just, it's all they can think about, right? A big, big, small town, right? What is it um, that you think are in the mindset of an entrepreneur? How would you define what you think are the main characteristics? I think that the main characteristic of an entrepreneur is that you fundamentally believe that the glass is half full, not half empty, that um, despite negativity and doubt, you can achieve things, that the world can and should be a better place, and that two guys in a garage, two gals in a garage, or a guy and a gal in a garage can be the next very successful company. And it's you know fundamentally optimistic. This is not to say that an entrepreneur has no doubts because if you don't have doubts, you're delusional and uh, you should be paranoid because you're, you're in for a very competitive life and a very trying, you know, challenging career path. But I think it's fundamentally optimistic and the willingness to try a growth mindset that you're not stuck in the class that you were born in. You're not stuck in the circumstances you're born in and that you can progress uh, up and down the class structure. Yeah. So as a mindset, um, what do you think of the success traits? Like what, what, what are the, I mean, there's obviously, well, I think I coined years ago, 22, but you can put any number on this. 22? Can, 22, yeah. There's 22 right. characteristics. Uh, traits. Traits. Uh, characteristics okay. are not really traits, right? I mean, characteristics could be mindset. They're, they're, they're adjectives, right? But like risk resiliency, uh, uh, advo- customer advocacy, right? Well, but you, I, I think if you come up with a list with, of 22, it defeats the purpose because that's like mind-boggling. It's too many. I think that, yeah, I think if you subjugate them, you're right. You can get some confusion from them, but they're pretty distinct. But you can have, t- give me three or four. Well, what are the, the things that you think are most important? Number one is grit. Okay. And number two is luck. And that's all you need. What, what do you mean? It's, that's not a fucking trait. It's luck. <laughs> you, can't, you can't generate it. You can't have luck as a trait. I want that. Tell me how I can be born with that. Be gritty. Uh, Grit is resiliency. Yeah. I get it. You've got to work hard. And guess what? When you work hard and you're resilient, you, you get lucky. You know, we're going to go down a little rat hole here, but I just read a manuscript of a book called Working Backwards, and it's okay. by a guy named Colin Breyer. So he yeah. was chief of staff of Jeff Bezos. And, oh, what a fascinating book. I, I think that may be the most important management book I've read in 10 years. And one of the key concepts obviously, because the book is called Working Backwards, is the concept that you work backwards from the customer as opposed to forward from your capabilities. 
So you may be able to make a widget, but that doesn't matter. What you have to figure out is what does the customer want and then work backwards from the customer. And I think that that is simple, but such a devastating important insight that it's you start with the customer and work backwards you don't start with your capabilities and work forward then don't you puncture your chances for innovation if you're trying because the customer will just want it bigger better faster yeah stronger but i i'm saying that you have to work backwards from the customer what the customer wants or needs i did not say that the customer can articulate that right so you could say that steve worked back from the customer knowing that they would need a graphical user interface computer that they could use by themselves, even though they were not articulating that. So then you're saying the skill set of an entrepreneur is to get that information and then read between the lines. Or or maybe you're Steve Jobs and you build whatever the hell you want and then you convince everybody that they did want that. That's another way you could do it. But yeah. that's only Steve Jobs could pull that off. But, but, but also that's a bit of a common myth. In as much that um, it's, it, it speaks to his very first time he said that, it sounded like he was devoid of customer feedback, ratings, or surveys. So the he idea is. we built, we no, he built what it, he built what they want to use. I think that's wonderful to say. Look, we're creatives and we build things that we would use ourselves. That's a great fucking proverb. But they also had customer research and they were listening and they listen all the time. Says and they're who? one of the best. Who told you oh. that? A- who told you that Apple under Steve Jobs listened to anybody? Well, because he was quoting customer reviews and surveys all the time. Well, but he quoted whatever was convenient. <laughs> well, that's true. No, I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't convenient for him. I mean, Walt, Mos- Walt Mossberg turned up a few times when he said, I think this is the, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, I, I would say that, you know, a focus group at Apple when Steve Jobs was there was the fact that his right and left hemispheres of his brain were connected. That's the focus group. Uh, Richard Branson famously said, and in fact, I interviewed him uh, years ago in Jacksonville about this. And he turned around and said, Look, I've come up with ideas out of broken experiences. I get on the plane, I think, God, this is awful. I don't want this experience, so I'm going to redefine the, you know, the red outfits and, the, and you know, the manicuring on the flight and everything. So he just observed these experiences and said, how do we re-engineer that? How do we just do something better? Uh, and it comes, I think, from being internally curious. Um, how important do you think that kind of curiosity is for entrepreneurs? Oh, I think it's crucial. I mean, you know, as they say, there must be a better way. That defined Apple, I think. You know, there must be a better way than a mini computer. There must be a better way than a Sony Walkman. I mean, there must be a better way than going into a a big box computer store that they have people who last week were driving cabs now telling you which computer to buy. So that's the Apple store, right? So there must be a better way is pretty rock solid way to do it yeah I, I love that apple store when that came out i thought wow but like you know where's it going now you know i mean it's already transformed everything. what are they can do open it up and create amphitheaters for romans and have a few gladiatorial fights i mean i mean that's what that that's what the the marketplace what, what does that is, have right? to do with an apple store <laughs> what no are you kidding what they're doing is unreal right they went with these do you look. think it's harder to innovate now though 
Well, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that he's, the stores are amazing, right? They redefined the consumer experience. And, and the idea was put the products among everyone and let everyone be able to serve them wherever they are. I love this many-to-many relationship. It's unreal. And then all of a sudden, I, I, you know, the, the top exec went near left and they said, how can we create more common places? Before the pandemic, they started to open up the stores, right? So you, so you could create cultural events and other things to bring it to the outside. And this is their vision, and I think it's fantastic. And it gets me to think, where is this going? Because we only think in malls. We only think in malls, but I'm trying to figure out, you know, what do they want? A train going through the store? I, I don't know. I think you should be thinking about other things. I can't help you. I'm internally curious <laughs> about this stuff. Let's go on to, let's go on to leadership. Um, leadership's different to traits, right? What would you tell an entrepreneur or, 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 or perhaps what you've done yourself in your life? Um, what do you think they need to do as a leader uh, in order to kind of just survive being an entrepreneur? Because it's kind of scary, right? Well, I think that, um, first of all, a leader can never have a bad day. No matter how bad your day is, you cannot have a bad day. That's number one. Number two, I would say that the most important thing for a leader is to hire people who are better than himself or herself. Yeah. If you're the CEO and you look around your staff meeting, you should say with great pride, that person can do finance better than I can. That person can do marketing better than I can. That person can do engineering better than I can. That person can do operations better than I can. So when you look around the room, everybody should be better at their function than you are. That, that should be a source of great pride. Um, we should be so lucky that leaders thought like that. It's like me saying, look, I'm so grateful you're here, which I am, right? Because you've got an interesting perspective. You have to tell them, right? This is the important thing about leadership is to relay yeah. that you're not just sapping their energy or insulting them. You're actually saying, thank you for that insight because we is smarter than me, right? I'm glad I hear it from you because you're good at this. Uh, what we used to say in the Macintosh division is that A players hire A players, but B players hire C players and C players hire D players. So as soon as you start hiring B players, you're going to soon see Z players. And that's what we call the bozo explosion. Can you define that? I like that's that, that, the that, bozo that, explosion. That, come on, give, give us a bit more of a definition. I like that. What, what more do you need to know? <laughs> well, a, a, a bozo, I He's mean. basically saying people get thicker and thicker as they go. Well, okay. I, I, I don't want to challenge this fucking dichotomy but i would argue that the banks out there say that they want to hire people that can ultimately improve themselves and become leaders and everyone's going to be the ceo of their life the ceo is a manager and they're going to climb to the top banks say that i was at jp morgan this was all they talked about but actually there's something in the, in large organizations where you want talented great people but there are unfortunately uh, you know organ grinders that shouldn't be perceived as organ grinders that don't need to actually be like that Right, they can be flatter and they can be loyal and they can be competent, but not everyone's going to move at the same speed. I mean, that would be the point. They're not bozos, in, in my. I, I don't know if you should use large investment banks as the example of innovation and entrepreneurship. Hell yeah. Well, I guess if you well, that's a good point. But then the fintech movement's proving us wrong, right? I mean, they've got the largest data pool in the world, uh, but but I agree. I wouldn't say they're the most innovative on the planet, but they did have the biggest integrations they could ever ever work on. Well, but you know, at, at the end, let's let's say you're in private equity, okay, or or finance. At the end of your life, what do you say you accomplished? How did you make the world a better place? Go ahead, I'm waiting. Are you putting me on the spot? I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I want to I want to remind you, guy. I asked the fucking questions. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I mean. You're talking to a guy that's almost nine years in J.P. Morgan. Uh, it, it, I, I agree. Look, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. 
I was accused of being an entrepreneur. I was a maverick. Um, the things I did there were kind of scary throughout my career. But I also it also shaped a lot of, of what I am. Do I think I'm satisfied if I was just dealing with financial instruments or risk? Um, it's a necessary evil. It's a currency for the world that we live in. Um, but I think there are better ways to impact your life or legacy. No, no kidding at all. Having said that, if you're an innovator and you're in tech and you want a big data challenge, a word that gets overused, and you want to look at somewhere to stress test that, then banks are a great place because the data is awful. The legacy systems is awful. right? So that will give you great scale and great intellectual acumen if you can solve some of their problems and they're ca- and they're cutting people every five minutes so you've got churn so i mean i'm just saying that, that there's great fintech opportunities right or, or finance you know finance yeah, so uh, my take here is that great innovation occurs not because of better sameness but you know order of magnitude difference and the example that i like to use is ice so it used to be that you got ice from an ice harvester who cut a block of ice out of a frozen lake or a frozen pond. Fast forward 50 years, now you have an ice factory. So it doesn't have to be a cold time of year and a cold location. You can freeze water in a factory any time of year. Jump another 50 years, and now you have a refrigerator curve. And now you have your own personal ice factory. But none of the ice harvesters became ice factories, and none of the ice factories became refrigerator companies because most companies de- define themselves in terms of what they already do. So if you say that you harvest ice, you don't embrace the factory. If you say you freeze water centrally and put it in an ice truck, you don't embrace a personal ice factory called a refrigerator. And the greatest example of this story is that in 1975, an engineer at Kodak invented digital photography. Well, let's just say none of us use a digital camera from Kodak today. And that's because Kodak defined themselves more as a chemicals company. And what they should have done is defined themselves as a memory preservation company. And if you say that your business is to preserve memories, then does it matter if it's chemicals on film, chemicals on paper or a digital sensor? No. When do you know when to pivot in something like that? Well, Obviously, if you're Kodak, you know, who can blame them, right? So they're printing money. They're very successful. They're selling film, you know, That's out the wazoo. That's what I'm saying. Wazoo. You're locked in. You're, you're, you're in your tunnel vision. You're, you're trying to build profit. You're trying to drive the business forward. For you, what you're saying is happening in parallel, and then you choose to jump and follow that instead at some point. Well, at least you could hedge bets, right? But, um, you know, could Kodak have threaded the needle and continue their film business while they created digital photography. I guess with hindsight, that would have been a smart thing to do. I can't tell you that it's easy to do it when you're the guy or the gal who has to make that decision. But, um, you know, I I don't know if you guys ever had them, but when's the last time you went to a Blockbuster store to rent a DVD? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's closed down now. Right. So, you know, Netflix is the next curve. Okay, so you're constantly innovating to continue on to the next curve so let's take your netflix now they're having an incredible period the pandemic was laid into their hands and everyone's streaming like crazy what should they be looking for or a company in that kind of situation where you say they're printing money how do you spot when is the time to look at the next curve are there some signals are there like little litmus tests do you know what i'm saying or do you just run R&D the whole time? Well, that's why it's easier to be the guest on a podcast than to be the CEO <laughs> of Netflix. True. 
although you've coined the name i like it i'm just thinking about how i can attribute it so i'm thinking okay i'm knocking out songs that are traveling what? things are doing well what do i do now do i try and invent the next spotify alongside trying to have my next hit <laughs> well you know let's let's apply this to podcasting right so you could define podcasting as we get guests, we record it, we edit it, we sound design it, and we put it up and people download it. That's one way of defining podcasting. Another is that we are in the business of uh, helping people understand and communicate ideas. That That's the bigger picture. So now, you know, I could make the case that maybe something that's the, the new buzzword here is social audio. So mm-hmm. maybe... Social audio, i.e. clubhouse, is the next curve in podcasting, right? And mm, okay. now, now I'm, this is a stretch here, but that, think in 1975, if somebody said, hmm, you know, digital photography is the next curve in photography in the middle of selling film. So it could be that, you know, social audio, clubhouse getting people in a room, listening to me talk to you guys instead of what we're doing now, recording, that may be the next curve in podcasting. So it feels like the first step to help you jump from curve to curve is actually not to narrow yourself in too early by your own definition. Yes. To be open in your outlook of how you help people. Yeah, I think you have to define what you do in terms of the benefit that people derive as opposed to the process that you're doing it. So the process is we put chemicals on film, but the benefits that people derive is the preservation of memories. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a great point. That's a good insight. Clubhouse is an interesting experiment. Obviously it's early. Um, whether there's another jump to a curve or just, can you curate better? Can you control the rooms better? Uh, you know, because what we have here is we hope to get is a highly controlled conversation. Uh, the rooms don't you know, fill you to that. It fills you with a lot of drother and other stuff, but you can get big audiences and you can do it live. Well, but, um, you know, but the moderator does have control who they bring up, right? So yeah. there is... To some degree, right? It's not total anarchy. No, no. But, but you know, they don't know what's coming. And I guess to some degree, it's live, so you can't do any edits, right? It's just there. Yeah, which is, right? you know, that's plus and minus, right? Yeah, no, totally. No, totally. All right, so let's talk about networking. So in your in your time, I always think that some of the great case stories of networking were actually not references from the UK, and they were not references from New York. They were references from the West Coast. But then also LinkedIn came and all these things that I didn't really think was a qualitative way to build a network. But entrepreneurs need to get out there and, and you know find ways to collaborate, find ways to hire, find, find ways to share insight. And it's all about this networking. How has that helped you in your career and um, do you have any perspective on, on this as an entrepreneur? You may find this hard to believe, but I am sure. fundamentally an introvert and uh, I don't need the attention. I don't need to be out there. The, I think networking is a necessary evil um, f- at the start of entrepreneurship, at the start of your career. And um, the interesting thing is, you know, how does the pandemic affect that? Because obviously we're not all going to mixers right now. Although I hate mixers anyway, so I never used to go to them. So knock social media as much as you like. I have hundreds, if not thousands of relationships with people that could never have happened without social media. So for all the bitching about social media, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not one of those people. I think social media has been fantastic. Do you think that, that 
social media is, is kind of something that's just going to go? Or do you think there's going to be another curve? I mean, I, I think of Clubhouse almost as just another form of social media. Yes. But do you think this is something that's just going to ultimately go away? Or do you think it's with us for, for a long time? Well, hard to imagine that social media is going to go away. I mean, that, that horse is out of the barn and procreating. So, uh, and it provides too much utility. I mean, you know, you you can focus on the negatives of social media, right? So, you know, that's how they assemble the the riot in in the Capitol, or that's where pedophiles hang out, or you know, yeah, okay, there's plenty. That's where abuse and that's where you know body shaming and blah blah blah. All these bad things happen, no question. But let us also remember so many good things happen. Listen, back in 1975, the three of us would not be doing this and we would not be reaching. And what would we be doing? Sending group faxes right now? I mean, how would that have worked? So, <laughs> Or carry a pigeon. Yeah. yeah. You're right, though. I think every tech, everything, any innovation has its pitfalls. Like even if uh, less obvious things like well, people talk about it quite lightly, but we talk about Netflix and the binge and how people invest all their time into it and lose days and don't interact. That's their own choice at the end of the day. Well, I mean, you could make the case that Gutenberg's printing press, you know, ruined literature right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, anybody yeah. could print a book. Yeah. You just have to buy a press. And, it, and given it's commoditized, you don't even need that, right? At least for us. So let's, let's talk about kind of the final kind of segment, talk about expertise, passion, and opportunity, which you've talked about. Can you can explain, I guess, like the sweet spot between expertise, passion, and opportunity? Why are these three things important to you or, or important to entrepreneurs? Well, I, I think the right uh, mental framework for that is to draw a, a Venn diagram, right? So you draw a Venn yep. diagram that has your, you know, your interests and then the opportunities and your expertise and where they all intersect. That's where you should be, uh, because if. Mm-hmm. If you're interested and you're good at something, but there's no opportunity, <laughs> then there's no future. So you need all three. So I, I think that's the way to think of it as a Venn diagram. I, I, I think that's a, the, probably the most articulate way of, of looking at it. That's your sweet spot. When you look at um, opportunities yourself, I'm just curious. I always am fascinated by people like me that just meander into lots of things that become meaningful, right? They have some kind of purpose. That's me. Uh, yeah, me, me too, me too. Uh, you know, too many investments and, and I'm multiple companies and I think to myself, what am I doing? And, and I can tell you that I was passionate. Uh, I have some expertise and I'm spotting opportunity. Um, what do you think about what, like, why you're doing what you're doing, right? Isn't it, you know, one thing's necessity. Another one is you're just intensely curious. So you're helping out friends. What, yeah. what is it? Uh, I, I don't have any rational intellectual explanation for what I do. I just fall in love with some stuff. And sometimes I fall in love and sometimes I don't. Um, I, it's not a science. Although, you yeah. know, maybe to use the Malcolm Gladwell theory that – I've done things for 10,000 hours. So now in a blink, I can make a decision. So, you know, did I decide really quickly or did it take 40 years to get to the point where I can blink and decide? I think it's closer to that, that um, my off the cuff, immediate gut reaction is the product of 40 years of trial and error. It's not just a flippant kind of, you know, yeah or no. But 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 along that is you jumping into things, right? You didn't take forty years to jump into things. You probably did them quite quickly. You fell in love, and I've been more wrong than right. Don't get me wrong. Oh, for sure. As as, as all of us, I want to just think about. Or I want you to give us a view, if you can, on you know what what can we be doing 
while we're in this wonderful transition phase like it, it, uh, to me it's the, probably the best thing has been reflection is that well, you know while we're changing we're reflecting and actually we're finding new things about ourselves and about the kind of way we can be productive and, and in many cases in my case i'm spending more time with my family than ever i used to make 75 trips a year i make zero um well if we had proper leadership we could have nailed this four months ago right but no i mean we decided we decided that um, it wasn't real or we decided that masks don't matter or washing your hands don't matter or, you know, it was a suppression of my freedom to not be able to go out. Given I live in both places, it astounds me. I share your frustration. But here's the thing, 75 million people, I don't think in politics that it's about the mind. I think these bits in the heart. Uh, it scares me. But what worries me is that people can't see it. Right, that somehow empathy and compassion has been lost in the translation of, of partisan politics. It's shocking. Um, it, you know, it is what it is. Well, but um, I think many of those people have been misled. It's not their fault. I think they've been misled. No, I mean, just to bring it back to startups, though, like for the context <laughs> of offering some to our listeners, I think what we're trying to get at is this is a difficult time. And as we're saying, it's transitionary and a lot of moving parts. And uh, we've spoken a lot about big subjects here innovation uh the you know the jumping the curve and all these things which are great and hard to do even in normal conditions what tips would you give to people who who just have to do their startup now because you said it's never a good time it's never a bad time just start if it's in you you start what tips would you give them at this point to be innovative and to launch their startup so ask yourself the the primary question which is therefore what you know looking at what you see happening what you think will happen ask yourself therefore what's needed that would be a rich vein Uh, another rich vein would be to build the product or service that you yourself want to use because i think that Mm -hmm. defined the genesis of apple yahoo and google really all the great techs even facebook i think all the great you know tech companies started because the founders built something that they wanted to use, which is very different than being, quote, market driven and looking at marketing reports that say, you know, in the year 2030, there's going to be a five billion dollar shrimp farming software market. So let's go sure. into shrimp farming, um, build what you want to use and just hope that you're not the only psychopath on the wor- in the world who wants to use that product. And remember that you know, the purpose of a company is to create customers. It's not to raise money or make you rich. It's to create customers. If you create enough customers, everything else falls into place. So, my friend, we are at the end of our podcast, and it's the thought for the day. Now, you may have one. You know I've always got one. So I don't want to hog the show. Do you have a thought for the day, or I'm going to dive in right now? <laughs> I have a thought for the day. Go on then. It's for once I've got a thought for the day that's more than a sentence. Go on then. It's not that I'm absence of thought, but I don't like being placed on the spot. But uh, yeah. I've been lamenting the end of Daft Punk. They've announced that they're finished. Ah, Did so you sad. know that? Yeah, I, well, I knew that they were they were dabbling with it. I mean, they were almost almost but gone, right? I mean, they, they made music as individuals. Uh, but yeah, as a group, they haven't done anything since Random Access Memories, which is now sadly their last album. But what I mean, I'm a big fan of Daft Punk. A lot of people are. They're, are we're very lucky to have them. Yeah, very lucky to have them in this generation. And they've been a huge influence on me. 
Um, I actually started out on their Discovery album, which is arguably the most fit. Well, back in the day, the most famous one because it had like um, One More Time, which is the perfect. Yes. Mate, that song is the perfect distillation of joy. Oh, yeah. uh, On the dance floor that ever existed anywhere around the world. And obviously they had their older albums, Homework, which is an incredible debut album if you guys might find that hard to listen to on your first listen if you're not a hardcore dance head but i would advise strongly to get into it but no my thought of the day surrounding them is just in an era where there's just so much transparency with musicians you know where they're we're encouraged to share every aspect of our life i just think like daft punk as a brand as a concept just executed the perfect career yeah. It was the perfect balance of creativity, mysteriousness, um, imagination and fantasticalness. And then to just give it a definitive ending. How do they begin so perfectly and end so perfectly? Yeah, yeah. It's just a, a lesson in staying true to your vision and and staying on course whilst delivering something magical at the same time. Yeah, that's a, it, it's a. I don't know. They're amazing. It's a work. It's a work of art. I mean, there are very few people at the top of their game that, like, like you say, get to define their start. You know, they get their beginning. They get to climb, 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 and then they get to retire in the manner that they want. That is a very, very useful thought for the day. And I would argue there was one other thing I'd add in there, and that's that you have to stay true to your identity. Both of them had mm. really strong identities. So, so authentic as well. Yeah, they, yeah. they were so mystical. Because they didn't want to play the media. They wanted to make music. They were very careful about what they did. And it just amped up everyone's attention on them. Exactly. Exactly. They're... Oh, man. I'm jealous. I'm I'm, I'm actually jealous. I want to start again, dude. Dude, dude, you sold as many records. What are you talking about? (laughs) Fucking jealous. Whatever. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Anyway, what's your thought of the day? Well, ironically, I'm going to straddle entrepreneurship and music all in one with something that you might have heard of. It's called What You're Going to (laughs) Do. And the reason I say what you're going to do, because you put it in every fucking song what you, what, that I have what, to listen to, right? But What you're what you going to do. What you're going to do. What, what you going to do. And it makes me think that I, I think about every day uh, when I'm working really long hours, and I know that people are struggling, whether it be the pandemic, uh, job uncertainty, or just through life. Life has ups and downs. It's not all up. It's impossible. Just how do you get For going sure. every morning? And I think one way to do that, is to set yourself a priority and say, what do I want to mm-hmm. achieve and how do I want to feel about it today? That's that what you're going to do. Ironically, mm. it's, an, it's an elevation of that same question about how you plan your life from today to this month to this year's project to what I want from a relationship, from what I want from my next career target. Yeah. It's how do you focus your mind to, to stay true to what you want to achieve? And the music reference, of course, is you. Um, you know, I give a bit of a, you know, Guy Kawasaki is there for what, all that stuff. But here's my one. What you're going to do, okay? <laughs> hey. Oh, I, I think, um, I, can, I, can I add on to the what you're going to do? Of course. Considering you so own if it. You were to, yeah, so if you're going to go, what, what you're going to do to meet your values, right? Yeah. What's going to get you up is when you go out to do your list for that day, They ha- it has to meet some sort of productivity that matches up with 
actually and I say this with authenticity something you actually want to achieve and that takes a certain amount of honesty because that's when you get your buzz yeah it's actually something you want to do which is what you what you got to do I'm going to meet my values (laughs) yeah it's not as sexy like that is it it's it's just I've just ruined your thought of the day I must have sorry I should have just you you kind of um it lost a bit of altitude um yeah, I, when you said it, when you said it, I, the mirage was spinning, the flutes are... Do, 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 do. We're going into the you, twilight you, zone. You and, just oh. took your accent in the track, which was perfect. What you going to do, right? And, 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 and the way I coined it, it pertains to just about everything in our life, right? But I was really just only focused on start small, start every day when you're challenged. Uh, go after one thing and do it really well. And if you can get another couple of things done, that's all well and good. And and it's just focusing on on that thing that you want to achieve. Perhaps it's helping you fulfill your purpose. Perhaps it's helping you feel productive. Maybe it's getting you something that elevates your 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 frame of mind or gives you something tomorrow. Or maybe it's a life of service. It's doing something that you've continued to do to help people. But having a mm. clear idea of that so that you don't get to these days where I really didn't achieve the one thing I wanted to achieve. And I just think that that's really important. Hey, thanks for listening to the Jax Jones and Martin Warner show. Remember to tell us what you think of the show in the comment section below or get in touch with us via our website, www.jacksonmartinshow.com. There's also a lot of stuff there about entrepreneurship, about Guy Kawasaki and all the other shows we've done. We're all over social media, so look out for Jax and Martin's show and hit like, share, subscribe.